Hi guys, welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Thanks so much for listening. You're definitely going to want to subscribe to our Patreon, and you can do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show so that you can hear the rest of this interview because we have some really great nuggets that come that you get to hear when you become a Patreon subscriber. And also you should consider giving Patreon memberships as holiday gifts. It's a very it's a cool gift. Um, okay, thanks. Bye. Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm your host, Katie Halpert. Please like us, rate us, review us on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud. It's a great time. I'm here, as usual, with my co-host, Gabe Pacheco. Hello, everybody. just wanted to say thank you to everyone who has already yes. donated oh to the Patreon. Yes. Uh, we really couldn't do this without you guys, and it really uh, means a lot. Uh, it means that I'm not, I don't feel like I'm shouting into the void anymore. Right. And uh, every little bit helps uh, keep us on the air. And, um, you know, we're not, we're not making a lot of money off this. We're not getting rich, but... Um, no, it all goes into... Uh... The production value, the time, attention, and effort that we can put into creating a product for all of you people out there that just need to hear our voices yes. in your head while you're walking around. I'm not sure why it makes Gabe feel like he's talking into a, not talking into a void or a void, <laughs> but um, it's definitely, you mean, because it, it's nice to know that people listen and that the support. It's the only way I it. feel love. Right, I get it, through money. Yes. Um, by my love and affection. And I wanted, and we want to thank people for coming to our live show, which was great. We had a live show. It was packed wall to wall. It was packed. Wall. And we do that. And we had karaoke. And we're going to be doing these every second Wednesday of the month uh, at the Brooklyn Commons 388 Atlantic. And next month, we're going to have Abby Martin from um, Telesur. Or, yeah, she used to be there. The journalist. And um, we have this cool deal with Credo. Remember, Credo is a great company. So we're very happy. You guys know Credo guests in the past. They, they're notoriously... Literally table pounding. You got Becky Bond, pounds a table. You got Murshid Zahid, pounds a table. They all laugh into the mic, though. They Those do. are our friends that laugh into the exactly. mic. Exactly. Yeah, Becky really does. Yeah, and and Becky, of course, went on from Credo to be a, um, a senior Bernie organizer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here, still alive, uh, uh, barely, barely. It's barely. got t- terrible cold, Katie. Terrible, terrible cold. cold. Yeah. But you know what? Uh, what? Today I was walking on 110th Street, mm. and I saw a guy, and he was he had a, a box of uh, the orange Dayquils, and he was just selling uh, uh, Dayquil Lucy's for a dollar right outside of the uh, six train. And uh, I, I, got, I copped a couple of those, and so I'm feeling all right. Wow. Were, I, were they wrapped? They were still wrapped. Okay, I'm not going to... I'm not going to buy unwrapped uh, pills. I know. I, I mean, yeah, I was just checking. But uh... I didn't know how desperate you were. <coughs> no, man. We have a great show for you today. It's going to come full circle. You'll see what I mean in a second. But I knew that Gabe was sick because I saw him this weekend because we both saw a one-woman show. And we are going to be having the star and creator of that one-woman show on our show today. Uh, Layla Ben Abdallah is going to be talking to us about her latest one-woman show called Good Morning Setunia. We also have Susie Weissman and Robert Brenner talking to us later in the show. We're very excited. So, yeah. but back to your back to your health stuff. So when I saw you in the theater, oh my gosh, I saw you at the Pitt Theater. Yeah. And um, yeah. Oh, I was I was swaddled. The only part of my body that was exposed was my face, and it was just dripping sweat, but I was still uh, chilled, still freezing, Perfect combo. shivering. Yeah. Yes, so sweaty and shivering at the same time. It was like your face was gray. Yeah, I look like John Cusack uh, in the lovemaking scene in Say Anything. I don't know if you've seen that I movie. I have but seen it's, it, but I don't remember the skin. He's in, he's in a car with Ione Skye, right. and they're both uh, 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 hugging, spooning, uh, post-coitally, and um, he is both shivering, and he ha- he's covered in a sweaty sheen. Got it. And uh, so that was exactly how I felt, only without the fun of having a post-coital session right. with Ione Skye, just me by myself. Uh, feverish right. and delirious. But, you know, I'm committed. I'm a professional, and I needed to go see this show, so exactly. I went. Exactly. I, f- I forced myself to go. I powered through. And uh, Uber, there and back. I don't usually take Ubers, but this was, like, a special occasion. Yeah, it was a special Uber occasion. You know what, though, Katie? What? I spent the rest of uh, the, the the last couple days inside. All I've been doing is binging on Netflix, and I saw a movie. I saw Allende. Oh. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, it's basically the the film is a dramatization of the last seven hours of his Ooh. life. In... Those are action packed. <laughs> Let's be honest. Those and, are gonna be action packed hours. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty interesting. I mean, I really recommend it to anybody that w- that wants to see how uh, how regimes end, 
Right. And uh, it, the, the anecdote I wanted to bring up from it was how hopeful he was. Even mm-hmm. at the end, uh, they, his, his, his um, assistants. Oh, can I just explain what people, so peop, in case yeah, people don't please. know? So Allende was the um, uh, le- democratically elected um, president of Chile, and he was overthrown in 1973 on September 11th. Yeah. Uh, in a coup that was supported, um, you know, on the down low. Is it the down low or the low down? Which well, one is it? It was, it was on the down low. <laughs> on the down low by the United States and by the CIA. By Nixon uh, specifically Kissinger, and Kissinger. He said, we don't, there's no need to let our country go communist just because they're irrational or something like that. Well, he wanted to nationalize. Allende wanted to right. nationalize the, the copper mines. And right. that was a big deal for uh, our companies in the U.S. Exactly. And they hated that idea. They hated that. So, so they I, want to make the economy scream. But I just want to make sure people know who this is. Augusto Pinochet took over in a violent coup, and it was a horrible human rights violating dictatorship that lasted until the 90s and, like, really cutting-edge sexual torture stuff. Like, And um, so now that people know... So now that people know, this film just follows his last uh, seven hours, and it's this is my favorite type of film, which is, like, the end of the siege, sort of in-the-bunker moments of a leader and he's in denial optimistically up until the end. He wakes up and he finds out that the Navy has uh, has uh, uh, defected. And then he finds out that the Air Force has defected and he's like, okay, well, I've still got the Army. And then finally he finds out that from one of his um, administrators that uh, Pinochet with the Army has also turned his back on him. So now he's all alone and Allende goes, well, that's that's all right. The, pe- the people will rise up and defend me. And the thing was is that as opposed to Fidel, he was into a, a nonviolent exactly. uh, revolution, and uh, he goes, "The people will defend me with their weapons." And then his uh, assistant says, "Oh, don't you remember we took their guns away earlier?" And uh, so there, this is <laughs> Gabe is not actually a Pinochet fan with no sympathy for Allende. He's just it's just no. from the dramatic angle. You're but you're uh, the irony reading. that he's like, "Oh yeah, right." I, it is, oh, my gun like, control oh. is the reason that uh, that the people could not rise up and help me out. So his last, although in all fairness, they may not have been able to anyway, because it was an army back coup. Right. His last speech that he broadcasts from the what is it called the Monca the palace Moneda Mon- is that yeah, yeah. was so moving and sad it's like a farewell speech and then he killed himself they say there's some controversy over whether he killed himself or he was killed but they were going to take him and kill him absolutely they pretended that they were going to like let him leave and not kill him but they were recording they were going to let him get on a plane and then that plane was going to mysteriously crash or he'd be dropped into the sea which is what they did with a lot of people they would drug them and then drop them into the sea yeah and uh and that's another reason by the way that fidel castro i mean Che Guevara was in Guatemala when there was another CIA back coup against a democratic, un- non-violent, unarmed, you know, democratically elected um, left reformist, not a revolutionary, Arbenz. And that is something, one of the things that influenced um, Che to be like, oh, yeah, maybe we do have to do this whole armed revolution thing. And then the thing in Chile was another thing. They were like, yeah, you see, see what happens when you don't have... A very armed. Uh, yeah, you gotta. So you know, you've you've got to have at least the threat of violence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, whatever. I mean, we have. Right. Look, let's look at the death penalty here. Hello. Okay, that was great. We are really excited. We're gonna call our first guest. Um, Layla Ben Abdullah is an actor and comedian with the People's Improv Theater in New York, and she's also the writer of a new show called Good Morning Zetunia, in which she performs with puppets to act out a satirical version of the events of the Arab Spring, in the fictional nation of Zitunia. Using puppetry sketch and character pieces, Layla tells the story of a dictator-controlled morning news show on the last day of broadcast. This is Good Morning Zitunia, the most trusted and only news source in the Republic of Zitunia. Truthful, objective, fair, and subject to the regulations of the Zetonian State Secrecy Bureau and our glorious and beloved President of the Republic, President Boussalim. Good morning, Zetonian. Good morning, Zetonian. Good morning, Zetonian. Viewing is mandatory, subject to arrest and incarceration of you and your entire family. Hello? Hi, Leila. Hey, how's it going? Good, you? Good. Layla, congratulations on your show, Good Morning Zetunia, which I saw this weekend. It's great. Can you tell people how they can see it? I have two performances left. They're both Fridays. The first one is this Friday, December 23rd at 730 
at the Pit Loft, 154 West 29th Street. It's at 7.30. And the second performance is Friday the 30th, also at 7.30. So can you tell us about how you um, created this this one-woman show, what inspired you to do it, and how it relates to your own personal background? Yeah. um, So I've done several solo shows before this, so that's sort of a medium that I feel very comfortable in. And I knew I wanted to talk about the Arab Spring and whatever solo show I did next, because I'm half Tunisian. My father's from Tunisia. And for anyone who sort of knows the Arab Spring, we were the, I say we, I was in the States. I was not like on the ground in Tunisia, but (laughs) um, we started the Arab Spring. I was there in spirit spirit, obsessively on social media for the months that it was going on. But um, we're the ones that catalyzed that. And it was sort of looking around at the world now and realizing that I think more people having more understanding about the Arab Spring and what came before and how it unfolded and how the world has been affected by it afterwards would really just go such a long way in helping a lot of people understand what's happening now, especially Americans. So I wanted to sort of see something fall apart um, and play that sort of frenetic, like everything's fine, everything's fine. But meanwhile, like everything is on fire out in the street. The news station, because it felt like that would allow me to do that in a really fun way, just like watch them all panic to try to maintain this veneer of calm, but it's far from that. Yeah, it also, uh, it, fe- it felt, uh, it reminded me of election night as well, at least yeah. for uh, for everyone who was part of the established Democrat uh, press corps, uh, sort of the unnerving, the dissonance that between what what was happening on the ground and what we were led to believe by everyone in suits on television. Exactly. And then this feeling like when the dust all settled of everyone just being like, how did this happen? And then really looking at it and realizing it's been in front of us the whole time that something like this would happen. What do you see as the connection between the Arab Spring and what what we experience here? Well, I think that something that we saw in the Arab Spring was just that a lot of these stories of people that were feeling this disillusionment where it was like happening behind closed doors or being, you know, forcibly oppressed in some way or just buried in general. And when it finally happened, the Arab Spring, there was this feeling of like, oh my gosh, where did this all come from? Where did this anger come from? Mm. And because over there, it's, you know, I, I certainly heightened my show to comedic effect, but that all is true in the sense of this widespread propaganda. And while we certainly don't have that same level of propaganda here, there's definitely, there was this feeling when it happened that there was just this huge swath of the country with concerns that we were just not aware of. And, and then even in the way that I see um, like the media in Tunisia sort of trying to say that, you know, that these sorts of things, like the protests and the violence in the street was being carried out by like a small faction of people that were, you know, extremists and being very violent and, and purposely trying to generate chaos when in reality they were just people that were feeling hopeless and feeling, you know, either deeply impoverished or, or just a lack of opportunities, if not poverty of that level. And I think we kind of are confronting a little bit of that now, just this feeling of like, I didn't know that these people felt this way. Right. Yeah, although it's interesting because here it's kind of like I didn't know that these people were awful, racist, sexist, homophobes. <laughs> They're not even like allowing that acknowledgement. You know what I mean? Uh, people who are who are still invested in the narrative of, of the election in the United States and Trump's victory, uh, you know, who frame Trump's victory as the kind of moral um, abdication of of a group of bigots. And of course, I'm right. it's not like there aren't bigots among Trump supporters, but. I do think that what's fascinating is and really scary is that these same people who were convinced that Hillary Clinton would win and got it wrong, obviously, are now telling us that we should listen to them now because they're getting right. it right now. It's like, well, were you so you were wrong then and now you're right? Why should we trust your takeaway, especially because they're blaming everyone but themselves? Um, right. And I, I it's interesting that I, I think that it's easier for us to be objective about people far away. Like mm-hmm. right now, when you're when you're saying that in Tunisia, that the uh, Arab Spring was was people who were dissatisfied. We're not calling them all uh, homophobes or, or racists or bigots because they 
we're going for that revolt against the status quo, but here we're right. saying that not. I'm not defending Trump, by the way, no, in yeah, any way. Gabe, shape or Gabe form. has a Trump T-shirt on. You <laughs> don't know that with a heart on it. No. But but the the idea of a general dissatisfaction with the status quo is what leads to um, to any rebellion. Right. And uh, well, you know what they do do though is they they I feel like the parallel there would be the casting of all rebel rebels as Islamists, Muslim fundamentalists, right? So we saw that right. that's one of the things that they do, right? So they, they Right, exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Gabe? Yeah, whereas like here, you know, are sort of Yes. You know, we, we how we call them, you know, bigots and racists. Right. And over there the sort of version of that was extremist. Yeah, Muslim extremist fundamentalist. And of course it all relates in that, you know, there are two issues and we've talked about this a lot on the show. One issue is kind of a moral judgment about people and what you think of them. But the other stuff is just like, I mean, even if you hate these people, you need to figure out how to not make them really angry. That's what shocks me about, at least in the United States, the lack of kind of strategic thinking around it. And there's so much entitlement. And yeah, it's funny. I, when I was watching, I didn't think of it this much. But now that we're talking about it, I mean, this is the Katie Halper show where literally everything is dragged into the <laughs> Bernie Clinton zone. Um, but it's not unrelated. It's fascinating. I was wondering what the one thing that I didn't 100 percent get from your show. And maybe I, maybe you left this ambiguity uh, uh, out there for all of us. But what was the political bent of the um, Arab Spring in Tunisia? I mean, it's it's hard to say exactly what. Because it was just in general, not so much that there's one particular political bent, so much as we want to be able to engage in politics in general. Mm. Um, you know, because when uh, under dictatorship, it's you know there are these sort of sham elections that have to happen every couple of years, and it's one party on the ballot that you literally can bubble in one little circle or not do it at all. <laughs> right. That's um, choice. They have and, a, a like, one a one bubble scantron. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, What's pretty much. Yeah, exactly. And um, <laughs> and all other political discourse is, you know, they're either sent into exile or forcibly disappeared is a very interesting tactic that yeah, the, dictators the, like to employ. Right. And, uh, gotta yeah, give, so give credit to Chile on that. To, what's that? We got to give some, a lot of credit to Latin America on that one. We were talking about Chile before, so sorry. Just wanted to oh, yeah. give them big ups for the disappearances. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, I cut yeah, you off. Exactly. Um, no, not at all. Um, yeah, so it wasn't so much that there was this revolution in place for like to bring into power one particular ideology just so much as just the ability to engage in it at all. And after the revolution, um, when we had our first free and fair elections as an independent monitor called them, um, it was actually a, a somewhat secular, but it was an Islamist party that won and by popular vote. And a couple of years later, when we had our second election, then it was a non-Islamist party that won and they just totally peacefully ceded power and said, you know, thanks for the chance to rule you like the way that we do it here and took off and let the next group come in. This is how we do it. Yeah, it's ooh. Friday night. That, that first I'm peaceful. <laughs> for the first peaceful transition, man. That's a big step. That's a big step for any it fledgling was, yeah. democracy. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's really fascinating. And it all does go back to that balance of power, right? If you if you crush rebellions or crush people too much, they just it's not going to it's not a good look. Um, yeah, exactly. So and uh, I have a question. Do you did you feel at all conflicted given that you're that, that the kind of Islamophobia and Arab phobia? And of course, those two things are not the same thing. But most people who have one uh, don't know that anyway. But do you feel right. at all conflicted about the way you represent um, Tunisia or the Arab world? Like, did you do you feel a, a, a kind of a do, ha, do you feel any conflict about it? Like you want to make sure that the stereotypes are not perpetuated. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think like for me doing this show and giving an opportunity and like giving an opportunity to just share a little bit of context of why this revolution happened and what was happening before. I think for me, it does, at least I hope um, it does a lot in terms of breaking down stereotypes. Cause I think the big stereotype is that the Arab and Muslim world or the Arab world and the Muslim world are just sort of these inherently violent, generally messed up places Mm -hmm. just full of people whose ideology is so crazy that there's no way those of us in the States could ever relate to it. Um, and I think that a lot of people definitely feel that way about, you know, places like Syria. They're just like, oh, well, it's obviously just sort of descended into this sectarian craziness when, when you actually understand like what precipitated something like that, which was this 
you know, live or die feeling of, you know, we want freedom, we want democracy, these things that here in the States we sort of think of as being very unique to us when it's not at all. Because when you look at the rest of the world and you see who's fighting and dying for it, it's Muslims. So for me, I just wanted with this show to talk a little bit about like what was going on in these places before this revolution and spread some understanding of why it happened to begin with. Because I don't think anybody would listen to that and say, oh, you know, do you have a president who's been in power for 30 years who just appoints all of his cronies and family members to all these positions and enriches himself and his family and violently crushes dissent and, you know, and wouldn't fight and in some cases give their lives against that. You know, I don't think anybody would feel that way. Mm. Have you received any negative attention for the work that you put out there? You know, it's so funny. I don't receive negative attention for my work, but every now and then I just get some sort of like random non sequitur tweet that's just like, hey, where, why aren't you wearing a hijab? And mm. I'm like, wh- where are you coming from? And what does that have to do with anything? Like, 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 I mean, I have in my Twitter bio that I'm Tunisian American, but that's just because I have like, you know, I try to like network with Tunisian filmmakers and whatnot. I want them to know that I'm like, legit or whatever yeah. um, but every now and then i'll just get some kind of like random stuff like that i think just by nature of having a distinctly muslim name but in terms of my work you know not yet but yeah well what well, i now you got the katie halber show bump hopefully you'll yeah. get a lot of you know you'll get you'll get yeah. du- uh, uh tens of tens of uh new new fans new haters uh yeah, yeah and <laughs> But uh, but one thing I wanted to say was that um, I loved the show because I like history and I like, um, you know, political science and I love Sesame Street. Mm. So I think if people the intersection of uh, intersectionality, yeah, exactly. Uh, of puppets and geopolitics um, make this a, make this a win for me. Yeah, no one else touches intersectionality when it comes to puppets. You know, that's the last frontier. So we're finally we're doing that. Do you um, have, do you have any final takeaways for um, for what you'd like maybe an audience uh, to uh, to get from your show? And also remind us where people yeah. can see it too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I wrote the show to be a story about the Arab Spring and not meant to be any kind of allegory for American politics. But I think we're in a place right now where just kind of letting go of this idea that things that happen in the Arab world are so foreign Mm. and so different from what could happen here would really give us a really great opportunity to understand how exactly dictatorship can take hold and flourish. So I think really understanding this like extremely recent part of history will help us see where parallels are being drawn between our situation and, and help us understand how we can resist. Right. Yeah. Resistance. Uh, That's the theme. Well, thank you so much, Layla and people check out her show at the pit loft. Remember, make sure you go to that one. Cause there are a couple of pit locations and that's uh, West 29th. That's right. Yes. This is the pit loft on West 29th. Yeah. You got two more chances. You only have two chances. Do not understand this. <laughs> this opportunity comes twice in a lifetime until it's renewed. That's my little M&M <laughs> shout out. Um, Thank you so much, Layla, and come back. We'll have you on for longer next time. Thank you. I love that. Thanks so much, guys. Okay. Thanks. Bye, Layla. Bye. Right. Bye. That was a good time. Huh? So much fun. So I, lo- much fun. I love hearing about uh, government disintegrations. Me, I know. Gabe is, like, smiling ear to ear. He's got his Trump T-shirt on. Just kidding. Just kidding. Can we do puppet videos? Can yeah, we, we should. Can we get some puppets yeah. in here? Let's do every every show. We should have a puppet. Just, like, two, two or three minute, like, a moment in socialist history. Oh, yeah, that would be with, cute. With, like, a Eugene B. Debs puppet. Oh, my God, that'd be really cute. Just getting put in jail by Woodrow Wilson. Oh, that would be yeah. really cute. He'll be like, Alien Sedition Act, and then there it is. I Eugene saw, B. Debs I, for, I can't believe I, for, last week jail. I saw Bernie Sanders speak at Cooper reunion what and he was asked what his favorite books were because it was an event put on by the strand the bookstore i know the place and well i want to be inclusive to our non-new york audience and um he said biographies coming guys he mentioned that biographies were his favorite books oh yeah um and he said uh, eugene v deb's biography and martin luther king biography and the reason he liked the Martin Luther King stuff is because basically, you know, everyone presents Martin Luther King as, as like just a, a civil rights person who fo- with a kind of narrow focus. But he knew how to play pool, according to some photos of him. Well, there's that. There's yeah. the untold pool flying story. But also there's the untold or less told or whitewashed, no pun intended, or perhaps it is. Um, oh, you see what happens? I start talking about it and then we get feedback because the, 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 the man doesn't want us to go there. Um, 
uh, he he was you know he was anti-capitalist and he talked about capitalism and he talked about the, the poor, war in what Vietnam. Was it, the poor, the poor people's, people's march. march. He was great, by the way, when I saw him. And um, and he also said, you know, remember that he said a couple of great things, and one of them was that Donald Trump doesn't have a mandate because Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by uh, two point five million yeah. people. I want everybody here not to forget ever. Uh, that in terms of the popular vote, Mr. Trump lost that to Secretary Clinton by almost three million votes. <laughs> Mr. Trump does not have a mandate to carry out his extremist ideas. And we should not forget that. Which is funny because then you get people on Twitter who are just like, um, he never said that. Why didn't Bernie say that? It's like, you're just an absolute, you're just an actual liar. The other thing that he said, this was cute. He's like, the good stuff is you're not like, you're not out there on the margins. You're not on the vanguard at, at the margins fighting for, you know, th like radical extremist things. You know, these are things that, uh, that people want, progressive, uh, enormously popular things, which was a nice comforting feeling. I want all of you to know that you're not heroes and heroines fighting some great uphill struggle out on the vanguard. What your views are, by and large, represent where the American people are on issue after issue. Should we raise the minimum wage to a living wage? Overwhelming support. Pay equity for women? Overwhelming support on the parts of the American people. Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, progressives. What I'm saying is that on all of those issues, that is where the American people are. Um, no, no w welcome. This is we take down the fourth wall on this show. So we have we have two guests who just walked into the room. We are really excited to bring in our, our next guests. We have Susie Weissman and Robert Brenner. And Robert Brenner is the director of the UCLA Center for Social Theory and Comparative History. And Susie Weissman is the host of Beneath the Surface, which is a Pacifica show, KPF. and KPFK. And um, also the author of Victor Serge, a political biography. Susie's also an, an award-winning broadcast journalist and um, professor of politics at St. Mary's College. I like to call them one of the uh, power couples of the left. The Jay-Z and Beyonce of the left? Totally. <laughs> Well, that's he didn't like that. Good, yeah, <laughs> we'll take it. Okay, good. Well, thank you guys so much for coming. Great to be here. Yeah, really exciting to have you. Is everyone's volume good? Nah, I need. Oh, he ne she needs more up. volume. Oh, I just want. Oh, that's yours. Good. I that's my knob. Oh, Gabe, that's very forward of you. That's my knob. Sorry, <laughs> couldn't help it. Susie, you can. La oh, good. Susie did laugh into the there mic. There we do you, go. Do you okay, you got it. Now that's Susie's knob. <laughs> okay, great. Sorry. Um, I hope. Uh, I hope great. no one else in this room minds. Yeah. Yeah. Bob, Bob, you guys are you're a modern couple. You can have my mic anytime. Yes. Thank you. Oh, thank Susie's you, Susie. very good. Yeah. Brought her a game. So yeah, really, thank you guys so much. And you are at, and at the new school this semester, yeah. correct? Let's talk a little bit about what is happening right now with this like really cool revival of McCarthyism, if you will. New McCarthyism. Well, there is a professor's watch list out there that's an update from David Horowitz's right. earlier one. Somehow they forgot to put me on it, and I feel slighted. That's but, horrible. Um, and you I'm going to write a letter to the editor about well, that. Well, no, but what we did and what most universities are doing, lots of them, including mine, are uh, en masse asking to join it. Um, to join the list of those who should be watched. And, ah, yeah, it's an yeah. act of solidarity and also diluting it. Um, but yeah. then the question becomes, really, is this a kind of new McCarthyism? And there, like so much, we really don't yet know. Right. And also the way that, like, the way that the, 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 the Russians are coming is being applied to the election and the language that's used around it. And I listened to your show, and you had a a really great guest on... Arch Getty. Arch Getty. And he was saying really fascinating things about this. I don't think that we should lose sight of the fact that this is really about the leaking or the exposure of the Democratic National Committee emails that were damning in themselves, and in order to deflect attention from the content of those mails, they pointed the fingers at the Russians. They had no evidence, and now it's just taken on a life of its own, and it's all part of what was going on prior to that, when Hillary Clinton was upping the ante against Russia, not pushing reset in the way of resetting the relations, but maybe backset to Cold War politics. And then that raised the questions, well, what was that really about? But 
just on the question of, of the hacking or leaking, whichever it may turn out to be, we're asked to believe this without a shred of evidence. The only evidence is the say-so, first of all, of uh, the political class and the CIA and the echoing of it by all of the media. And it's got that effect that after being repeated so many times, people are just taking, taking it as true. Goebbels was right. Yeah. Right? But there's no enough. evidence presented yet. Not And that long article that appeared in the New York Times about a week ago, did not present any facts. In fact, it's been called fact-free. And fanciful. Yeah, so the question <laughs> is, you know, if you know anything about Russia, it, you know, they would not be so clumsy to do it the way that it's been portrayed to have been done. They wouldn't use, like, the code name Felix Dzerzhinsky, the, head of, the first head of the uh, Secret Service or the Cheka at the time. They would not use Cozy Bear or Cyrillic typewriter. And the other side of it is, of course, anybody who knows anything about uh, Russia today is that hacking is a sport and everybody does it. You'll go on the street. Anybody you talk to will, you know, ask you questions about what may or may not have been hacked. Right. So the thought that you could just say that these hacks came from the highest sources, you'd have to ask why and, 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 and present some evidence. There's a great CNN story that was just out on December 15th, but the headline was, Intel Analysis Shows Putin Approved Election Hacking. And that's the, the headline. And then uh, in the second paragraph, it says, but neither of the sources said they knew of specific intelligence that directly ties Putin to the attack. It's just, that's just an example of the blatant kind of you know disconnect between what the headline says and what the actual facts are. Inside Russia today, the story is the rigging of their own sort of, you know, regional elections. And so he's much more concerned about what's going on domestically. Right. Yeah. I also um, find it interesting that it's the Democratic Party that I always thought of as more dovish or at least uh, more open and left-leaning to mm. be banging the war drum right now, calling every, uh, making us all scared of Russia again, and that somehow... The uh, the the Republicans that are the hawkish <laughs> right. nationalists are kind of like, all right, yeah, I like Putin. Now they're well, they're peacenik internationalists. Nixon that did detente. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, right. not that that really shows or means anything, but usually the Democrats are less comfortable in power, and if they're going to put forward social programs, they have to first show their anti-communist credentials. Where how that fits today. Anyone's right. guess. Right. It's like uh, a Democrat uh, politician needs to be like, show that they're like a hawk or tough on crime or whatever. Right. Or the other, exactly. Yeah. Or it takes, as Tom. Thomas Frank? Yes. Thomas Frank says in his book, he quotes someone who says it takes a liberal sometimes. This is the other side of it, right? Like, it takes a liberal to slash spending in a way that won't get the opposition that a, a Republican will get. They do the dirty work. Exactly. But I wanted to talk about the election. And Bob, you are someone who focuses on the economy. And I think that it, these things are related, obviously, right? You see, I think, this this blaming the Russia, the Russians are coming. My dad was joking that the evidence is that there was like borscht on the hacked. But <laughs> ah, she covered her mouth. Don't cover the mouth on the hacked documents or something. And of course, as your guest was saying, if they were sophisticated hackers, they wouldn't have the, you know, it wouldn't be in Cyrillic font and it wouldn't have like a famous secret policeman's name on it. I was just waiting for it to be like, hi, like I want the username to be like um, Vladimir Putin did this and the password being like, no, really, I did it. Like not even joking in Russian. But I think that speaks to this denial or kind of obfuscation of what happened. So as if Hillary Clinton and the Democrats can just talk about how the Russians did this, they don't have to talk about the economics or the sociological forces around why Trump came to power. So could you talk about what you think sure, played I, a role into the, his victory? Sure. I mean, I think you're on target so far in that the Clinton response uh, to the defeat with the pushing forward of this uh, Putin intervention and so on was a continuation of the absolute bankruptcy of that campaign and the Democratic Party today. I mean, you have, uh, I mean, uh, everybody's, I think, pretty well aware of this, that the Clinton campaign was completely incapable of speaking to the, you know, populist issues that its own staff knew were absolutely central. I mean, its own staff knew that, on the one hand, you have Sanders. On the other hand, you have Trump. And that the, the way forward at this point, I mean, 
you don't need to have big economics. You just look back since 1972, uh, there's been no, there's been a decline in real wages for the 80 percent, 90 percent of the American working class decline since that period. So you have like a half century, a half century with people uh, unable to get a raise. So it, you know, we could, you know, go into millions of more statistics, but this is, uh, you know, very clear that this is the centerpiece of the, you know, the background uh, to, to the election. You have uh, essentially an inability of Hillary to speak to these issues. She was disqualified from speaking to these issues by her connections with Wall Street, by her support for uh, trade, by her anti-union policy. Every aspect of her politics disqualified her from speaking to the, to the fundamental issues that Sanders you know, made that great run on and that Trump saw an opening for. Right. So basically what her advisors, I think, saw was that if she ran as Hillary Clinton, she would be slaughtered. As it was, she ran as something fairly close to Hillary Clinton, trying to get the support of the suburban women, uh, the, you know, basically the, the new constituency of the Democratic Party, not so new, but for 30 years or so, it's been ever high, you know, looking ever higher on the socioeconomic scale to get their support, looking to, the, to, to you know, to those people. And so she had herself in a, you know, an incredible bind. And only in that way could uh, Trump have won. I mean, Trump barely got more votes than the Republicans got in 2012. And what it really mainly took was Hillary being unable mm. to get, you know, do anywhere near as well as Obama had, which was not that great in 2012. If you look at the shift that won the election for, for Trump, it was about a million votes. And um, in the, I'm talking about the, you know, the, the, the contested states, Michigan's own, so, uh, about a million votes in all. And 80% uh, 80, 80 of them were votes that Hillary didn't get, that Obama got. Trump barely got, you know, maybe 20% of these votes, which, you know, were more than than um, his predecessors. So, so you, right. So it wasn't that he did so well. It's that she did pretty badly. She did, uh, she ver she did very, very, bad, very yeah. badly. And uh, for me, she totally deserved what she got. And the, the fact that neoliberalism was dealt a powerful defeat should be an inspiration to us and rather than a source of, of depression. And, uh, you know, I would say that's where politics should begin for the left, Right. Although I remember um, to pull back the curtain a little bit, I was actually with you guys on election night. And I remember you said, Susie, you said it's going to be a Brexit. It's Bob, it's going to be a Brexit. And you were right, of course. But I also remember when I another time um, we were talking and I we were kind of like, well, of course, we got it has to we got to get Clinton in there. Like um, Adolf Reed, you know, had his this piece vote for the neoliberal warmonger. Right. Yeah, liberal warmonger. And um, but I think what's happening is that what you just said, I mean, there is a potential opening. Right. And I think there's this weird self-censorship because when you say there's an opening, you're not dismissing all the terrible stuff that will and can happen. But I really think that there's such a liberal um, like policing of discourse that we can't like if you even say that it's white privilege. And this is a whole other thing that we could get into. But the idea that, you know, it, to see anything po potentially positive about this is somehow like co-signing or sanctioning the racism of of the Trump agenda. Um, of course, I would argue that if we want to defeat the Trump agenda, we actually have to look at how to organize against it. Right. And where those openings are. So what do you guys think about how to move forward kind of concretely in terms of organizing? And I'm curious if, if as the as a couple, are there any issues that you guys disagree on when it comes to this? Like 
Any fights that you want to share on air? Kate, well, that's likes a to, great. That's you a like gr- to break up couples on air. I do. How's that? Share on air. <laughs> we did have Liza um, Featherstone and Doug Henwood on. The slogan for that was the the couple that uh, hates neoliberalism together stays together. So, <laughs> well, know, I think that describes us too. Right. But but if anything, Bob might think that I'm slightly softer. But I think that because I really think you have to have an inside outside game, mm. and more than anything right now. You have to have, and Bob will not disagree with me, I'm sure, um, there's an opening. The Sanders campaign is really the story of this election and really for this century so far because it shows that for a wide swath of the population, they you know, not only rejected the candidate and the party, but that they think socialism is okay and they reject capitalism as well. So that's that didn't go away just because Trump won. And Trump jumps into power after having promised a sort of populist New Deal in the sense infrastructure building and all of these, you know, a better health care plan. And he puts people into power who are absolutely going to do a slash and burn. And that's what we have to face in this next period. So the resistance to it is key. And the question about that resistance is what kind of, you know, what kind of strategic focus it has. And I think that's really the key issue about organizing in this period. I do think a, a second look more should be taken, though, to, to uh, you know, cash out this notion of an opening mm-hmm. today. Because what happened on the morrow of the election? Within about 30 seconds, you had Schumer appointed had, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Senate the uh, Majority Leader, and you had Nancy Pelosi. So these are, of course, brand-new faces designed to speak to the, you know, the, right. to the uh, rising massive opposition right. that, um, you know, was having, was taking this populist, uh, uh, you know, initiative. And then, but if you, Being it's, it's much worse. It's, it's, it's much, much worse than that. If you look at every constituency in the Democratic Party, there is none that opened itself up, even in the slightest degree, to you know to the Sanders forces. Especially, you had uh, you look at the you look at the Black Congressional Caucus, which is where you might expect some you know progressive uh, motion. Complete rejection of Sanders. You you yeah. John Lewis marked him absent from the I civil know. rights movement. That was so embarrassing. As if he as if he took legacy. attendance or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he he didn't do a very good job of taking attendance exactly. because the guy happened up. the happened guy to happened be, to be exactly. there. And there was happened to be photographic and videographic evidence. Oh well. Hmm. Oops. You look at frankly the union movement. Almost the entirety of the union movement stuck with Clinton. Did not make a peep. You did have an labor a, for Bernie, though. Very, mm. I think that's rare. That's absolutely right. And the mean, nurses, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and you, had more, you had more yeah. than that. Sure. You, you had, a, you know, you had about four or five leading unions that did make this break, and that is exceedingly important. But you know what I think is is crucial is the way this uh, democratic. Leadership, I mean, leadership of the, you know, leading themselves as organized is really without much, without much give. The way that, you know, sort of politics of neoliberalism is set up today, there is not like there's no uh, opening for reform. You would have, I mean, of the old, you know, reform, of course, is now taken over by the right. But the you know the basic ideas of some sort of jobs programs right. or so on. increase social welfare increase social welfare it's, we're going to see huge cuts right instead. I mean look at even even when she was running for office she insisted initially no we can't raise the minimum wage past twelve dollars you might I mean if I had been running with her politics I would have lied and said of course I'm for I'm, I'm right. for that but you know she clearly thought she was a principled supporter of the neoliberal politics she'd long held and and was so arrogant about you know the lack of any you know alternative that she was was able to do I think that is the first thing for about that people should not have the slightest hope in what constitutes a Democratic Party. Sanders ran as a Democrat, but not of the Democratic Party. And the mobilization that he made was almost entirely new forces outside the party. And and that set the example that we should be looking for. On the other hand, I, I think that the Trump 
that the Trump um, uh, politics also gives us a tremendous opening because while Trump said the right things, uh, you know, in in the in in the uh, in in the election first in the primaries and then at the, especially at the start of the, of the election, talking about uh, you know opposition to free trade, uh, at, at, right. you know TPP, even, right. yeah, and even even uh, he talked at a moment of cutting cutting the military. And he's always against finance and so on, but he had no organization that expressed that right wing populism. So when he comes in, what he ends up doing is what every the Republican or Democrat did, which was moved further to the right compared to the previous administration. And so you have now an, a, an, a very hard right politics that is heavily continuous with what, with what came before. And I don't think that is going to you know, do very well with this base that elected him, who, re who really saw who saw him as their candidate. Of course, a lot of it is uh, is racist. A lot of it is what people say it is. But a lot of it also had some hope that he would open things up a little bit for them. He, right. the, it's going to be just the opposite. So you're going to have, even from Trump, uh, a, it seems to me, a, a further right-wing neoliberalism compared to a very far right-wing neoliberalism of the Democratic Party. So there's a massive opening, and the question is going to be, can people take up, in a sense, inside and outside, as Susie said, where Sanders left off? Can Sanders himself, with Elizabeth Warren, will they have the guts, basically, to say no to all the legislation that's come down the pipe and to break with effectively break right. politically with the Democratic Party. Sanders, you know, I hope he does. I mean, it, he, he seems to have the desire to do that, but to actually say something about, for example, Obama, who had, you know, no different, his politics are no different from Hillary's. Except less hawkish. I think, but he did appoint her Secretary of State, so he's not that principled on it. But I do. Yeah, think and he is the he is the chief, uh, you know, um, deporter, deporter in chief. In chief. Right. Yeah. Well, not just that, but I mean, I think that you saw when Obama came in, and th there's probably a, a lot of reasons if we wanted to do a different show and talk about why he behaved as he did. But what he did was to waste the first year trying to, you know, get along. Mm. And the Republicans, on the other hand, traded in their boxing gloves for brass knuckles. And now we see what, what comes after brass knuckles. I don't know, knives? Mm, you yeah. know, because now we see McCrory giving the Republicans the template for what to do from here on in McCrory, the governor of North Carolina, who first refused to accept the results of the election, had already tried to suppress the vote, and now has basically, you know, changed the rules to strip the governor from power so that it doesn't matter if Democrats come in, even tepid central right. center-right de uh, Democrats. So given all of that, yeah, the question is, can we see this Democratic Party taking on a fighting role like that. And I can't. And I can't see even Chuck Schumer, you know, who now oh, says he's in favor of Ralph, of, of uh, Ralph Ellison. But, uh, 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 Keith yeah. Ellison. Keith right. Ellison. Right. And we don't know what that's going to mean. But literally, I say what I take the opening to mean is that the social movements have to grow to such an extent that the Democrats come to the social movement to ask what to do next. And not the other way, you know, not you know, the reverse. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is literally a, a, a good, like, journalist, Alec McGillis, this Alec McGillis tweeted, gotta wonder whether the fight for 15 could have put more focus on preventing election of someone whose labor secretary is their leading foe. I mean, literally blaming the this movement for not doing more for Hillary. It's always good to blame poor people. I mean, I mean, I, yeah, right. I couldn't believe, I literally couldn't believe it. Maybe it was Hillary not doing more for the movement and then Mark Murray, who's this MSNBC guy, tweets, in retrospect, the big Dem slash progressive fight over the size of minimum wage, 12 or 15, seems quaint, doesn't it? Oh. You Like, literally, their takeaway. I mean, this is how entitled and out of touch they are. It's that they say the things we know that they think, but think that they wouldn't say or, or write out loud, right? But they do it publicly. So the fault, we're going to blame the Fight for 15 movement. And the takeaway is that Sanders shouldn't have pushed for 15 over 12 because look what we have now. Don't they get that's the exact opposite? Part of the reason we have Trump 
is because Clinton was the candidate who on her own hadn't pushed for the $15 minimum wage because she was a $12 minimum wage person. It was like, are you, is this a parody? I mean, that's what I, I can't, last night, by the way, and in, in other parody things, um, people were, were tweeting literally like F, they were writing it out, F you Bernie Sanders because of the electoral college stuff. It was on him. Like the man ran across the country. He didn't have to endorse her. He didn't have to campaign for her. He did more for her than I think most people did. And they're just literally cursing him like aloud. Or this um, sort of, the, you know, this last gasp hope that somehow uh, the faithless electors would change their votes. As it turned out, more of them changed from Hillary than changed from Trump. So, you right. know, this was a stupid thing to base yourself on. Right. This hope that somehow the system could be made to be more democratic. And what we've seen. You know, th there's always been a tension in, in since the founding of the country between liberty and democracy or, and equality. That, okay, that doesn't need to really be said. Right. But once the Soviet Union imploded, you know, democracy got ever more hollow everywhere, there and here. It's been hollow for a very long time, and now it's like less than a shell. And as I, I don't want to keep going back to it, but given, you know, the shenanigans that we're seeing in voter suppression and also like right. in stripping people of any ability, even, even you know, the way that um, Obama didn't fight back when they wouldn't hold hearings to give him a Supreme Court nomination. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's no fight from the Democrats. They're the go-along party. And I think Bob said it right. You know, for Hillary Clinton, who really represents the neoliberalism in total, I mean, if you think of neoliberalism, you think of the Clintons, right? So then for her to run against herself, you know, just right. <laughs> was always going to be a tall order. And so she was left with that tepid campaign where you were supposed to elect her because she deserved it she was entitled it was her turn or she trump was capable was bad guy you know? right, and right. i mean she ran against trump but that was another thing right when you were talking about what she ran against and what's interesting is trump is an is a confrontational anti-status quo guy right so when he runs against hillary it fits within his narrative it makes sense and you know trump's genius is that every single bad thing about him fit within the narrative of his not being a political insider not being politics as usual um <laughs> Hillary wasn't that, right? I mean, she wanted to pretend to not be an insider, but no one really believed that. So her running against someone just didn't fit because she's supposed to be a positive. You know, she's supposed to offer solutions. And he Which, offered, he always offered a solution, even if it was outlandish. Yeah. And he always had Build that wall. And he always had uh, one message that he stuck to. So he was like always on brand. And he always had something positive and fantastical to tell you, and also something entertaining. Whereas every time she talked, she was saying Hillary was basically saying, "Slow down, I got this. Everything's fine." Right? Or there's no. What do you mean? Everything's fine? There's nothing even. <laughs> there's no problem. There's a structural basis for this uh, shyness about supporting any of these movements or or pushing for any you know smidgen of a of a decent decent social uh, gains. And to hear the rest of this interview, please subscribe on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And you'll get to hear the rest of the discussion, which is really cool. And we talk about how we can resist under Trump.